Welcome to the Stories or Soul Food podcast with your hosts, Brian Cole and best-selling author, N.D. Wilson. This audio is brought to you by Cannonball Books and Great Homeschool Conventions. Stories or Soul Food, episode 37, 26, <laughs> which is good because we're off on our odyssey of Nate. Are we? We're okay. beginning. I think this will be really fun. Okay. <laughs> We've been getting a bunch of questions, so we're going to start off talking about the 100 cupboards today. We're doing it again. Last time, you got the backstory on Nate's journey to publishing. Yeah, with, I'm, with I'm trying cupboards. to remember what we covered. But we didn't really get into the specifics. You've also talked about some of the themes behind the 100 cupboards, how you wanted mm. to focus us on the everyday aspects of life. But I don't think we've talked about the story itself. The story itself, did we talk about the story of the story, the origin point? I think we've touched on it, but I do think that's the place where we begin. Okay. Uh, so again, first question though, people who have not read your books before, okay, should they listen to this first? My, sure. I mean, I don't think it matters. Yeah. Okay. I didn't think so. I'm not going to, and spoilers or whatever. I don't, I'm not going to protect anybody, but right. I we, don't think there's a reason to worry. I don't think so either. And if I can just use the target audience, my seven year old and all his buddies in second grade were given the chance to reread 100 cupboards or read a different book out loud in class. And they all chose reread 100 cupboards. <laughs> there we go. The votes are in, people. Seven second year olds are in. <laughs> and They're in big. They already knew what happened and they still wanted to hear it again. <laughs> so, yeah, the spoilers don't matter. <laughs> <laughs> that is funny. Okay. So, man, people who have not read my books, it's on them, really. Yeah. Their fault. By so, now, they'll just know that they need to go read them. Yeah, go do it. So, yeah. what I can say is, from the sixth grade on, I knew I wanted to write stories. That was a given. Uh, around junior high, I decided not to do it yet because I, I realized that my stuff was terrible. That was good. And then uh, high school, I started writing. A I wrote a few short stories. I wrote some sketches. I got into creative nonfiction in a significant way. Uh, and this is still the route I advise writers to go. So I have given that advice to many people. I also have included that by design in the MFA program, you know, the Camperdown Writers Kiln that I am the director of. I think writing creative nonfiction is not the only way, just a great way, a really effective way to develop fictional skills. Because um, because you're learning how to make bricks. I think yeah, you described yeah. it before. Making bricks, but also just the fact that you can falsify your work. So you're trying to capture things that are nonfiction. And so you can look at the the moment you tried to capture versus the art you've created and you can actually sit back and look at your look at your painting and say the clouds are wrong i did a yeah. bad job as opposed to when you try to paint things from your imagination when you're still a new writer then you tend to adjust your imagination to suit what you've done yeah what you put on the page so that moves you you have an image in your head you try to describe it you fail and so you change the image in your head uh reality doesn't work that way so it's a great path but for me i don't know why i did it I really, I can't look back and explain why you moved why. to nonfiction. Yeah. And I think a, a huge part of it was just feeling the failure, feeling that I was failing and trying to capture fictional moments. And so moving towards just trying to capture moments, but I'm really not sure what the overt motivation was. I just know that it worked. 
Mm. You know, it really was effective. And I felt that pretty rapidly. So through high school, then into college, very rarely did I write fiction and I most often wrote creative nonfiction. Then I went to graduate school, but this is all still with the full and certain knowledge that I was going to be a writer. Like this was, I had no plan B. It was, I'm going to be a writer. And I knew I was going to go to graduate school because I wanted to get a teaching job so that I could be a writer. I mean, that was it. That's what Lewis did. So it seemed like a workable model. Teaching was a great way to incubate breaks, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So I could write over Christmases and spring break and summer vacation. Like, what other job gives you that much writing time? So that was my thinking. And I went to grad school at St. John's in Annapolis and got married my second year, uh, right before graduation. Um, I actually bounced to Liberty and then I went to St. John's for three semesters, got married and was writing like kind of off to the races. I am writing. Uh, I'm now going to write fiction, setting out to write fiction. This is the plan. I need a teaching job. Uh, I could only get part-time teaching work. Couldn't find anything else. I'd really, it turned out that I'd only ever worked full-time swinging a hammer construction and then part-time editorial, part-time teaching, like scraps of this, scraps of that. Yeah. And I couldn't really put anything full-time together. And I had a buddy over at our house late one night. We'd moved back to Idaho after I graduated and you know, it was like 12, one in the morning and my friend, Mark Beecham, who'd been a friend since our freshman year um, in college at NSA, used the phrase, I think he was the one that used the phrase, but in the conversation that was not about stories, even we weren't even talking about story ideas. He used the phrase 100 little cupboards. At least that phrase got spoken somewhere. I remember where I was in the room. I remember the room, but I don't remember the conversation we were having other than we were laughing. And I hit pause and I remember saying, that sounds like the title for a book. That sounds like a great book title, 100 Little Cupboards. And my wife popped in from the kitchen and said, that sounds like a stupid book. <laughs> okay, yeah. And I said, come now, like, no, it'd be amazing. And we had this, you know, amused laughing argument about whether or not this would be a good kid's book. And she was saying, really, 100 places to put your plates. and I would say, no, it'd be amazing. And so I started pitching this story idea of this kid going to Kansas and getting stuck in this attic of an old house with his aunt and uncles. And then there's a knocking inside his wall and the plaster starts falling off and he starts scraping the plaster away. And there's, you know, 99 different little doors. None of them match. They're all different. You know, the one's getting mail, lots of different stuff. So just to win the argument, I'm spinning this thing. And she says, fine, 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 fine. It'd be a fun story. And then Mark and I moved on and we kept talking about other stuff. And eventually the evening ended. I go to bed. I wake up the next morning with Heather sitting on the bed and her telling me, uh, I need to know what happens next. And I didn't know what she was talking about. And she's like, in the story, like what happens in the cupboards, like the little cupboards. And I was like, I don't know. I made up enough to win the argument. I didn't make up anything else. <laughs> there was no further need. There was no need. And she said, well, I need to know. And I said, okay. And so I started writing that day. I started working on the story. And so there was this fixed point of an attic and a bunch of tiny little doors that didn't match. And then there's, you know, I don't remember what else was discussed that night. I don't remember how much, I just don't remember. I remember that. And I remember the concept later when I dropped the little from the title, I remember keeping the concept little, like the idea. I really liked the, the wish fulfillment and then the, the letdown of the door being tiny. You know, like there's a door to another world, but it's tiny. 
<laughs> like it's, you can put your hand through it and it can receive mail, but you're not going through this. And ha- so that gave me the, that big thing to drop later of like the discovery of how to travel through these things. And, you know, it, right. It, but that structure was pretty awesome. So I started writing and it, I really settled on Kansas as being the, the location for it uh, because I wanted to do this magic in America thing, which is what something we've already discussed. I wanted that right. magic in America thing, but in Kansas, we kind of mythically understand that anything's possible. You know, the American psyche has been touched by the Wizard of Oz and tornadoes, and you know, it represents Middle America. It represents like as normal as you can get. Yeah, you know, as flat and basic as you can get. But also, just I, I'd grown up in wheat fields, and I knew it was similar to the terrain. I, I you know, the agriculture I was familiar with, it was just flat. So, right. And then take we, the Palouse here and just iron it flat. We, we do have about. lots of questions. In fact, from a native Kansas resident yeah. asking about the exist actual existence of Henry Kansas. And not to my knowledge. Yeah. He was saying he, I, I also did some Googling and found a, perhaps a township or a space. <laughs> there might be a space named Henry in yeah, Kansas. <laughs> that, does, that doesn't surprise me. So, so yeah, as, if I'm going to roll, you can hit me with specific questions as we go, but it's, yeah. the goal was Kansas because of thanks to Oz, we understood that anything could happen in Kansas. And then of course I was taking the the concept from Narnia, you know, taking the influence of Narnia, the joy of finding these paths to other worlds, but also just making them far more fraught, uh, something more like what you see in, in uh, Magician's Nephew, but a lot more fraught and then tiny and weird and a mystery. So way more of a brooding, slow boiling mystery than you find in Narnia. Right. But in this uh, all American setting and thematically the goal is to have this timid kid who's been overprotected and badly parented discovers that this is a fantasy world this is a magical world and when he does that the doors begin to open yeah. you know he other opportunities open and so you have that dynamic thematically as far as illusions go and plots go you know the, the plot goes it's like i loved the character of eli fitzferrin mostly just because i thought the the prefix of of fits on a fairy was was kind of funny uh you know the use of that germanic yeah okay so with fair farin well i guess that's more book the two. invention of the word farin also yeah made me happy and i'm it's the kind of thing that feels to me like it must have existed somewhere hmm. and that's why why i like it so if i discovered like oh no i picked this up from spencer or you know john dunn used it somewhere that wouldn't surprise me because it was in my brain and it it seemed like it was in my brain as a thing which existed. So I, I can't source it. I either made it up completely like I made up the Ragon, which makes an appearance in this book, or it was there, just kind of latent, and yeah. I stole it from somebody. Yeah. So the, the concept of the Farron and all of this was inspired. So basically the, the backstory for Cupboards is inspired by a story that's told in a book called The Secret Commonwealth about a guy named Robert Kirk, who was the seventh son. Uh, and a Presbyterian minister, and was explaining that the seventh son is given the second sight. And, and so, in which book is this? It's called The Secret Commonwealth. And he wrote- Is it new or old? Old, or? 1600s. Oh, okay. Uh, Sir Walter Scott tried to hunt down a first edition and failed. Wow. So I have, a, I have a, an early edition, but not the first edition. But we're talking 1600s. Okay. Uh, a story and about fairies. A story about the world of fairies and fairy mounds and this guy getting very specific about what you do when you encounter a fairy. And it's things like you have to turn around and look at them between your legs, like bend over and look, or else they'll take you. 
And awesome. Yeah. So this a Presbyterian minister who claimed to have the second sight and he could just see the fairy world and the spirit realm functioning all around Scotland. And, and here's where we need we find out if people listen to our episodes <clears throat> testing, telling them to believe things that other people tell them, even if, <laughs> yeah. it, even if yeah. it, it runs in a foul <clears throat> so of their modern I, view. I encountered this mythology and I encountered the story of Sir Walter Scott, who successfully located the crown jewels of Scotland. I mean, he uncovered that mystery. He did cool things. He was awesome. And he failed to find this first edition. So I found a very early edition, but not a first edition, and um, read it and found it comical and amazing. Uh, it's just weird. <laughs> and, <laughs> but I decided to steal this mythology for 100 Cupboards, the concept of, of a seventh son having the second sight. But I also, I, I pulled a Lewis like he does in the Space Trilogy where I pulled into other stories like the Green Man. So I was, I was like, what are, what are these different weird questions that, that kicked around at this time period in Europe and, and the British Isles and the, the mythology around Green Men? The Green Men is very, very weird. And for those of you who don't know what they are, they're carvings that show up all over the place, but especially in churches and old structures where there's a man basically sprouting uh, vegetation. So out of his ears, out of his mouth, you know, growing vines, leaves, you know, just sort of a man who is this point of origin for vegetative life. And so I took that mystery and I merged it with the mystery of the seventh son and the part of having the second sight, because we, you know, the, the story of fairies and so on is often a place of, you know, little imps and creatures interacting with the natural world, dryads, naiads for Lewis, that kind of thing. So I give the fairies a kind of life magic. You know, they have this kind yeah. of a natural magic. It's not a manipulative magic. It's just something they're gifted with, like birds can fly. Fair, you know, the farin can manipulate, you know, grow things and, and so on. And so I give the seventh son powers, the ability to see through the magic of the fairies, to see through magic, to not be blinded, to have the second sight, but also to grow into uh, wielding magic himself, but the magic of the farin, that it's, part, it's his inheritance. And so the concept of the popper son is something that I, I kind of, I don't explain all this in backstory. These are just mythical bones. Uh, the popper son being the seventh son who has no inheritance. Like by the time, by the time they get to your part of the will, there's nothing left. You have six yeah. older brothers. So the popper son has the second sight, has the ability to wield the magic of the fairies, but is also in this mythology, the true heir of a seventh son. So the seventh son of a seventh son is the actual heir, you know, the youngest. And so I basically kind of baked that in and hid it under the surface of the first book. And so there's this kid who doesn't know his origin. He shows up in Kansas and he's got the, the thumping in the wall and the plaster that falls off and he finds all these cupboards. And yeah, his aunt's name is Dorothy as a hat tip to the Wizard of Oz. And we are, you know, people have argued that Uncle Frank is the Tin Man. And while I see the similarities, it was not by design. <laughs> um yeah, that was, well i mean you have a house well we're jumping ahead a second book yeah. but the house gets sucked away yeah exactly yeah. i do i do continue to give little nods to oz but it's the mythology i was building on was much deeper and older than that you know that was that was one of the slights of hand on the surface that made people think oh i'm he's telling it like he's telling an oz story in kansas oh and it made me really happy when critics bit that you know they would be all excited about oz that's as deep as they saw mm -hmm. so henry shows up in Kansas, unbeknownst to him, he's a seventh son. You know, he thinks he's an only child. Um, um, and he's the- uh, Ursula and, and, oh, shoot, I had it written down. What's his name? Philip. 
Yeah, Philip and <laughs> Ursula. So he's the adopted son of Philip and Ursula, but he's you know grown up at a boarding school uh, in Boston, and now he's in Kansas, and he slowly you know he uncovers these doors and these mysteries, and there's a weird character living in the house secretly named Eli Fitzferrin, who tries to blind Henry with his Farron magic, but it doesn't quite work. He can you know Henry can see through it, and then Henry starts getting mail through these doors from people who know who he is, and they they recognize him and they're aware that he has this history and this past from elsewhere and so they are either his his born enemy or they are um you know his allies or supposed to be his allies so he's but the letters are pretty bureaucratic and yeah so he gets these really threatening letters to him specifically like we know who you are basically and this is your situation he doesn't know who he is so things through these magical doors through these magical cupboards in his wall uh, are answering questions for yeah. him, or at least posing questions uh, and telling him the answers are on the other side. So people have asked often, like Henry Henry York comes to Henry Kansas. Why? Why did I name the town the same thing as the kid? And the answer there is because God does this. We know there's just weird alignments and foreshadowing. The town is named in advance. You know, it's named. Like in, in preparation as, for yeah for the coming of henry and he's it's named after a different henry and uh i think the backstory i give is this I, I don't know if it actually made the cut i think it did i had this long backstory about this businessman this merchant who's heading west and no, where, i'm trying to remember i just we just reread it so and where his uh ox died he decided to start his town because he couldn't go any farther. So I said, on the spot marked with an ox, <laughs> he built Henry Kansas. Um, I don't think I don't think that made so it. that one that one sticks with me as a beautiful <laughs> as a beautiful origin story. For, I love it. Uh, for Henry is named after this businessman who failed to head west, and this well, is where his ox died. So he started this little town. Well, that answers Andrew W's question, which was about your setting for Henry yeah. Kansas. But uh, I guess a second a second follow up one on that would be uh, a more of a meta question from Ben. And is wondering, he's been listening to the podcast and wondered, is this, is your book popcorn or is it a meal? What is it? Like, how are we, how are we supposed to approach okay. your writing? That's a great question. I would say it's both. Popcorn and a meal. I would say we can move away from popcorn and just say comfort food. Yeah. But filling in heavy, I hope. Okay. You know, I'm trying to do the exact same thing that Lewis is doing where you are presenting things that are functionally comfort food. I'm, it's not fancy. I'm not trying to win a Pulitzer. I'm trying to I'm trying to feed people, but I want to give them meals that will really feed them and that will yield a return on multiple reads. And that's what I was so going to say. It seems like a great descriptor of all of your work is there's a surface level going where you can cruise really fast over the top of your story and enjoy it and have fun. Yeah. But then when I come back as an adult rereading to my kids, I'm enjoying what you're doing deeper thematically as well and seeing how a lot of your nonfiction themes yeah are, or are born out of your fiction or out of you <laughs> so if you're really hungry if you you might eat a, a really fantastic steak really fast like really fast and it would be like oh that was good and you move on but the goal is to basically approach comfort food with respect and approach it in a way that you think it can yield a lot of edification over multiple reads and over multiple years i've really enjoyed talking to people who read the books when they came out, you know, as kids and then read them again as adults and are surprised, you know, it's like, cause they have a memory of them being popcorn and they remember the happiness, the bliss of just eating a bunch of popcorn. And then years later they go back through and are sort of like, whoa, there's, 
right? Okay. There are simple books and your writing style is not simple, I think we'd say, right? Yeah. On, on, one, on one level, all good writing is simple because you get what it's trying to yeah, do. Yeah, it can't get in its own way. But I think yeah. you've got enough, you've talked about this before, you're reading, you're trying to do a lot with your words yeah. as much as, as you can. Yep. And it's, especially those early books, everything I wrote was always edited multiple times to the ear. Mm-hmm. You know, it's the words are treated like physical objects, not just like ideas that are supposed to speak to your intellect through your eyeballs. Yeah. But there's a, there should be a score to them, kind of a rhythm and a music to the prose that sets the tone for the scene and serves the scene. So yeah. that's one of the ways that things that are popcorn remain just movie popcorn. It never gets deeper is if you are just communicating information and the information is stressful and exciting and you know, right. Hardy Boys style, people just yeah. whip, whip through. One theme that I've noticed on this second read is kind of the theme of parenting. Cause you've talked yeah. about this when we've been writing. And you've contrasted Frank and Dottie with uh, Philip and Ursula mm-hmm. and Henry's adopted parents and then his aunt and uncle. And uh, is that something that was overt or a goal or did it come out as you're looking at why Henry would be the kind of character that he is? A bit a bit afraid, but still yeah. with so potential. Char- characterization matters, but also you find in every corner of the real world, you find meaning. And if, if you kind of scratch the surface in anybody's life, any character's life, you're going to find deep truths about parenting, about fatherhood, about affection, about forgiveness. It doesn't matter. Any kid, anywhere, any 18-year-old, any college freshman, anywhere, you go talk to them and you're going to start unpacking their past and their past is going to really contribute to who they are in the present. Yeah. And it's going to have baked in their, their struggles and their issues. But there will be great cosmic truths to be discovered in any of those corners. And so when you're right. writing, if you're trying to do a good job, if you're trying to fully in flesh, fully incarnate a story, then you want anywhere that somebody might start digging, you want there to be stuff. You filled it in there like God does. You put stuff there, even if no one ever looks, it's there. Right. So the fact that Henry's, Henry's mom makes him wear a helmet all the time. Like yeah, exactly. <laughs> he's in a car seat till way too old. Or he's never had a pocket knife. Never had a pocket knife. He's not allowed to drink soda. Right. You know, like these are the things that create not a young Christopher Columbus. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he's timid and he's afraid. Never hit a baseball. Now, yeah, yeah. He's embarrassed. And, you know, I've, I've seen, I've seen that a lot. I've seen a lot of shame in boys, especially who reach a certain age and they can't do something. Yeah. You know, they just, the shame of I never learned, the shame of I don't know how. It doesn't have to be baseball, uh, just anything. But baseball's perfect because I don't know how to throw. It's right. just so primal. I can't throw. That's tough. <laughs> yeah. So, and, and you, you look actually like a have, fool out there. Yeah, and you actually have to learn. Like in order to, you will not know if you did not learn when you were little. If you do not learn as a kid, you won't suddenly reach old age and know how to throw. Yeah, baseball yeah. becomes a symbol for Henry's second sight. It's almost yeah. his first, what he's learning about baseball yeah. is what he needs to learn about his whole life. About everything. Yeah. So when he gets dragged off to a barbecue and it's a stressful, uncomfortable thing, it's just as foreign. That barbecue in Kansas and kids playing baseball is a magical world. It's his first passage through to a strange and foreign place. It's one of your goals is that you would like us all to see the backyard baseball 
yeah. as something that's our chance to be just as foreign as Henrietta diving into the Battle of Actium or something. Yeah, like yeah, that. yeah. Something that happens in I think that's Daniel and Fire, where it is bizarre and strange, and you're standing in this, you know, in Kansas, this mysterious world where tornadoes happen and barbecues a thing and big red barns. Yeah. And here's this thing, this right with a ball and a stick, you know, that is actually hard. It's actually hard to do. Super simple. And yeah, that's that's like the first sign of his coming of age that he has to not be white grass under a board in the yard, as Uncle Frank describes him. Yeah. If you leave a board in the yard and you lift it up after a couple of days, the grass under there is all yellow and white. And that's how Frank describes him. He's got to start growing. He's got to get light. He's got to start taking risks and and pushing. So that's that's what he does. And he's got he's been teased with all these mysteries of people on the other side of these magical doors know who he is. Some of them hate him and want to destroy him. Some of them are bossy and bureaucratic, but they know. Uh, and one of these cupboards specifically really kind of touches him. He just has this weird, deep memory. Yeah. Uh, and has really positive associations with the smell and the sound of this. I did want to ask, I yeah. felt like we, that should be probably where we conclude. It felt like maybe the one thing that people would be confused about, and I didn't know how much you wanted them to know about Arthurian legend. I mean, that's the thing. Like, there are kids who pour through the legend at the beginning of the book that's got all 99 doors labeled. My with, sons. My yeah, sons, with yeah. Names. There's people who pour through it and they want to know the backstory for all of them. And every one of them is known. You know, I wanted it to be like that where with the wood between the worlds with Lewis, I loved how many pools there were in The Magician's Nephew. There's a ton of pools you don't go through. And so I wanted that experience of like, yeah, there's worlds behind those. And so I invented destinations for all of these cupboards, even though I knew I wasn't going to use all of them, but all of them were places that I wanted to go or places I would love to tell a story. And so people who look closely will see things that look like, oh, wow, that looks like that would connect to Outlaws of Time. Um, and the answer is yes. Mm. And that looks like it would connect to Boys of Blur. And the answer is yes, like it does. And that was all me just placing pins, dropping pins for different places I'd love to tell stories. So people who pour over that, they need to know that behind each of those things, there is a world, there's a story, there's something I wanted to play with. Okay. Even if I never get to it. But the ultimate goal for cupboards was to create a myth merger, like a place where different mythologies collide. This green man mythology, this seventh son mythology, this- Arthurian um, legend. Yeah, an Arthurian illusion, exactly, right. uh, with Baden Hill. And what's um, the dog though from Baden Hill? Do you get to tell me that? I'm not going to tell you that. The dog is for me. <laughs> <laughs> okay, good. Well, what about uh, what about the cat? We have someone who's, who okay. wants to know about, Jess E wants to know about uh, if Blake the cat is named after. William Blake. William Blake yes. or Blake, William Blake or Blake Snyder from Save the Cat? Uh, William Blake. <laughs> okay, good. So yeah, Blake the cat is named after William Blake. The other cat. The, the other cat in the story is a creepy cat that tried to steal my lasagna in Colombia on my honeymoon. <laughs> I, liked, I, I was so happy when that cat escaped. <laughs> yeah. So there's a real cat in the world, probably doesn't exist anymore, but my wife and I decided to honeymoon in Colombia because that seemed like a rational decision at the time. And, uh, at the t and it, was black, it was blacklisted by the State Department at the time. It's not as bad now, but still. So we went and I remember sitting on the rooftop on this this restaurant watching these locals play beach soccer which was really really fun and for some unknown reason i had ordered this uh waitress was excited by the special that day and so i said okay go for it and they brought me chicken lasagna in colombia and i was like <laughs> what is 
Like, okay, maybe I should have been eating a little more regionally, but she was excited by it. And this really scabby black cat showed up on this roof and it just kept stalking me and was always just sneaking up on me. And big bald patches that were bloody scabs and this beautiful black fur everywhere else. But just this thing was in yeah, bad shape and nasty. the creepiest critter I'd ever faced. And so that cat showed up. <laughs> and one, that very specific cat shows up. Um, I think the if I was going to try to like encapsulate 100 cupboards come just and put a pin in it and move on is I was trying to assemble a lot of things that I loved, a lot of things that had sparked my own imagination while also laying down the groundwork to do bigger and crazier things. And it's one of the things that strikes me about being a novelist is that everybody always feels the need, the burning need to tell me which is their favorite, like which one they like the most. And it's never the same. Like it just doesn't. So there are people who love 100 cupboards for its containment for its potential for the fact that it could go you know it could go anywhere it could be anything and then there's people who and they do but they don't like the big huge epics like they prefer the hobbit to the two towers right you know the hobbit is their favorite because there's just very simple there's a dragon there's a very simple there thing. and back again yeah there and back again and then but lord of the rings like man that's just big and it's funny when i talk to people who do prefer the hobbit to the Lord of the Rings. But I get the same exact thing where people prefer 100 cupboards to Dandelion Fire and Chestnut King. And I get people who wildly prefer Dandelion Fire and Chestnut King because they love the two towers. They love the big, grand, act two, cataclysmic, you know, conflicts. So it's funny to me that I've, like Lee Pike Ridge, we'll talk about at some point, but there's people who will say to me, like, I don't understand why you don't just write Lee Pike Ridge over and over and over again. Like, this is my, this is my favorite. Why don't you just do little small ones like this? Yeah. I was like, well, I like little small ones. I like, I like that, but I also like the drums. I like a little Wagner in my fantasy at some right. points. <laughs> because um, uh, life is not all the same thing over and over. Yep, exactly. So 100 Cupboards is this uh, mysterious opening of doors and uh, an adventure for this character of Henry and his counterpoint, Henrietta, in the town of Henry, named in advance for his coming. and it sets the stage and it sets the mythology and it opens the doors. But then from there, things explode. Things really, really take off uh, and get big and get grand. And so there are people who say like, I don't know. I just am not, I don't like big and grand. And there's people who I like really quiet and domestic. I like domestic mysteries. Um, then there's people who like them all, but I don't know what it is about readers. I don't know why people, I guess I feel the need as well. Why, the, why people feel the need to, pick their favorite pick you know and i feel like well that's great i'm glad you liked that but it is funny it's all part but of you can like them all is what you want to say like they're from different yeah, things i like them yeah. all and right. they're all very very different and i like them for different times different moods but i'll get the people will tell me like man we just love the outlaws of time way more than the cupboard series like okay awesome you know like great <laughs> and people will say like i don't understand why you did a fantasy western and why didn't you just write more sequels to you did it so that i would be able to explain it over and over at homeschool conferences and have people say <laughs> wait what what happens <laughs> a snake in his a arm snake. he's got snakes <laughs> in his arms so it is it is really funny and i there's scenes uh, i have scenes that are my favorites and i've got like moments and tones that are my favorites but i love all of these things i really do like them and i like them as one journey like different aspects of one big journey of storytelling so that's 100 Covers, which it started with uh, an argument that my buddy Mark Beecham uh, helped trigger. And 
it has, ended in has a, not yet ended. No, it's not yet ended. And you know, there's a lot, we have a show in development and there's, it's in more than 20 languages and around the country. And you know, I, the first attempt when I was trying to write the story for my wife was just one giant volume. And then later on random house, a bunch of different publishers wanted it and random house uh, asked me to split it into three. And so that's how we already talked about that. And yep. that's, that's how that happened. But it's funny because can you People tell us more about this. the show or do we need to wait till a dandelion fire to talk about that? Oh, we should wait on the show until we know it's going to happen. Like this right. is, uh, it's one of those things where, you know, it's like announcing you're crossing a crocodile river with the wildebeests. <laughs> you gotta... And I will be on the other side at 2 PM precisely. <laughs> yes. So I've been with 100 cupboards. People have tried to make 100 cupboards so many times and it has come so close so many times that at this point, I'm just not going to say anything until it's actually on the screen. And if it's on the screen, I probably still won't believe it. Yeah. So it's been in development and had deals at different studios a lot, you know, a lot of, a lot of different things. So we'll see if it actually happens this time. Yeah. Well, we obviously have much more to talk about, but we're going to have to be done. We don't get to even talk about Tumbleweed. You know, we didn't get to talk about many nice. of my favorite doors. We didn't get to talk about okay. the Farron, but we'll get there. Well, let's, well, next time, let's just go with questions. Yeah. So instead of broad strokes, yeah, uh, backstory we, for me. We got them. I mean, that's all of the specific questions good, that we good, received. Good. So, we'd... so we can talk about Tumbleweed. I saw some others yeah. um, that I didn't get to, and I was asked some uh, at a recent conference. Yeah. People love it. Um, we'll see which one we do next. Tumbleweed. B the tumbleweed <laughs> you know the symbolism of the wind i think it's uh that's a classic you you like you've used the wind as as a as a symbol in other works as well i i yes i have um, so has john the apostle so has so has, so has john the revelator um it's been done right yeah, it's it's been done but i think people need to i i noticed the yeah just, i look forward to talking about dandelions right we'll talk about dandelions next time um so send in your questions. We do love them. They're, they help. And uh, we've seen, even when we answer them right away, like, what is the Raggins name? <laughs> Rags. <laughs> those, even, those questions we answer right away and move on. What is a Raggins? It is actually funny to me that the Raggins has just kind of made it into lore at this point. Isn't there a school named after the Raggins? Yeah, there's a school uh, in uh, Western Washington that has Raggins as a mascot. And then there. Yeah, there's, it's showed up in a Creaturepedia, it showed up in different places, and it just kind of exists now in, in fantasy world, which is funny to me, because people also want to know where I got it. They're like, so where did you, where's the source for the Raggin? It's like, I made it up from my head. 2,000 years in the future, people will be looking back at chimeras and Raggins as <laughs> mythology <laughs> yes. of, the, of the Western world. Yes, the Raggin. The Raggin is magnificent, and I love it a lot, especially that it eats cat food. <laughs> <laughs> Alrighty, that's all for now we'll talk about dandelion fire and chestnut king which of, of course ties back to the secret commonwealth and the reverend robert kirk you've heard it all here yes on stories or soul food sasfa yeah cheers <laughs> thanks for listening to this week's edition of the stories or soul food podcast if you're someone highly invested in kid fiction and finding the best stories for your kids and you haven't downloaded the Canon app, I want to encourage you to download and subscribe today. You can find things on there such as Christine Cohen's The Winter King, Ethan Nicole's Brave Ollie Possum, Peter Lightheart's Wise Words, a book on Narnia from Douglas Wilson titled What I Learned in Narnia, and much, much more. Download the app today wherever you get your apps and subscribe.